Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good day. I am Ted King. This is King of the Ride podcast, and we've got a good one in store. So perhaps you caught wind of my recent trip into the high country, namely the Arkansas high country, namely the Arkansas high country bicycle race. My first go at a bike packing race. This was a self-supported 1,020 mile ride through the NWA Northwest Arkansas. It was wild. It was an adventure in every sense of the word. It was me entirely out of my element with the exception that I like riding my bike. Only this ride makes any of my previous bike rides up until now look minuscule. So with loads of of supportive comments and questions coming in from all directions, before, during, and especially afterwards, I thought it'd be fun to make a little project here. We put the explicit request out there to send in your questions. Literally hundreds upon hundreds of questions were submitted. Laura very generously volunteered to call through them to see what themes were popular. And then she is handed the mic and becomes host of this show. So, insert screechy record scratch noise. Let's backtrack. Let's kick it off. Without further ado, I am Ted King. I am the guest on today's show. Laura King is your host. This is the Arkansas High Country episode. Welcome to the King of the Ride podcast. I'm your stand-in host. I am Laura King. And today we have a very special guest, my husband, Edward Carrington King, here to discuss the Arkansas High Country Race. Is that your best impression of me? Yeah. How'd I do? I think it's seven demerits. (laughs) That's awful. How are you feeling on a scale of one to ten currently? Oh, there's there's the micro and there's the macro. This very moment, I'm feeling pretty okay. Uh, it is late in the evening. It is after dinner. I have a tasty glass of Cabernet in my hand. Uh, I just got up from the floor where I was doing some PT exercises, as recommended by our dear friend Pamela, uh, to help get a little movement, a little more movement and blood flow into my neck and back and arms and try to get some more feeling into my hands. So on one hand, it feels nice to uh, be relaxed and to be feeling better day to day. I still don't feel great, but then counter to that, I am feeling so much better than I was a week ago. So that's a long-winded way of saying I feel like a seven. What what number would you give to uh, after you crossed, after you finished, you crossed the line? Scale of one to ten, how did you feel then? Is one bad? <laughs> yes. One is empty, ten is magnificent? Yes. Um, well, you know, it's funny. I crossed the line and felt, ac- I felt terrible for the final, you know, 150 miles. And so every one of those pedal strokes, including going up to that, you know, 2% grade into the the town square finish, those hurt so bad. But then as soon as I crossed the line, it was just like such a magnificent sense of relief that at completely sleep deprived and exhausted and, and 
entirely emptied me. I was kind of chipper at three in the morning. Um, again, long-winded way of saying, truly, I felt like a, I felt euphorically like a eight, but then physically and mentally like a 1.1. Did you feel worse when you looked in the mirror? No, I'd I'd been taking enough selfies (laughs) because, you know, it's mandatory along the route to sort of prove where you are that you take a dozen selfies at various specific points along the way. So I had seen just how awful I looked, um, even going back to day two. I was pretty concerned. I will say, you know, I couldn't sleep that the last night when I was anticipating maybe you being finished a little bit earlier than you were. Um, I, I was waking up at 12 a.m., 1 a.m., 2 a.m., checking your little dot on the map, and I was pretty concerned about what your physical and mental state was. But when I watched you live across the line, you were remarkably composed and well-spoken, so I was pretty I was impressed with that. Thanks. Good well, work. it goes back to, I had, I had mentioned this, when I crossed the finish line at the finish line, so to speak, when I finished the tour across Vermont, the VTXL, and I was so physically empty after 310 miles and 21 hours or whatever it was of pedaling, um, and then I, when I was on camera and I was just like, I sort of remembered that and was like, okay, don't do that. Be positive because in reality you are happy about this achievement and and try to convey that. So that's what I was that's what I was hearkening back to. Good work. Thanks. Well, let's let's rewind here and give a little summary of what you the details of what you just accomplished. So I have here one thousand twenty one miles over eighty thousand feet of climbing. Your pedal time was around seventy five hours. Which I, I I told you that's 75 hours, and I think that may be incorrect. Okay. Well. Or maybe that is correct. Maybe that's, you're right, pedaling time as opposed to the pure start-stop time. Elapsed time was f- mm-hmm. four days, 20 hours, 51 minutes. So yep. maybe, okay, okay, 75 hours. Okay, so the elapsed time, you set an FKT of four days, 20, 20 hours, 51 minutes. The previous FKT was set by a well-known bikepacking duo named Ernie and Scotty Lechuga, which was four days, 22 hours, and five minutes, if mm-hmm. I have my information correct here. That sounds right. Um, so can you, so tell us what sparked the idea for this race, just to begin. So I suppose at first the Arkansas High Country race, the Arkansas High Country route, the ARHCR, um, probably first hit my radar a year ago or so, a little bit more than a year ago when Rebecca Rush rode it for the first time. Um, I don't know how it hit her radar, probably through the bikepacking world, but I was aware of Rebecca doing this big crazy ride in Northwest Arkansas. And, And I think we in the cycling world see the NWA, Northwest Arkansas, getting all sorts of press more and more thanks to, probably thanks to the Walton family as much as anybody. I mean, if, truth be told, love them or hate them, like the the Waltons have a great deal of wealth and if anybody's going to throw money at the sport of cycling, I think for all intents and purposes, it's a good thing. Um, Tom and Stuart Walton, the grandchildren of uh, original Sam, if I'm not mistaken, uh, they just love cycling and they have a great 
great deal of wealth and they are developing cycling in this area and they're making Bentonville and Fayetteville and, and all of Northwest Arkansas that's just mecca for cycling and they're they're spending money elsewhere. They're spending it all over the country, truth be told, to develop trails and, and it's just, I wish I had the stats off the top of my head. So, someone has created the route. Thousand miles, thousand plus miles in Northwest Arkansas. Rebecca Rush does it. I pay attention only so much that I know it exists. And then somewhere in uh, I want to say late summer, midsummer 2020, I see that uh, my dear friend Bobby Wintle is doing it through an Instagram post. He, he took an Instagram shot of the um, Arkansas High Country route maps. Now, there's a great deal of homework that goes into creating, into figuring out the route and what you're going to do and the whole side of beta when you have to do the research on what the route is. Beginning from the very beginning where, where this route is actually two loops that there's a northern route and there's a southern route and they're both loops and they have sort of uh, an overlapping middle section almost like a figure eight but once you eliminate the middle section that's what this entire 1021 1040 mile whatever it is loop where that exists the point being bobby wintel posted that he was doing it and I think he had nudged me. I mean, I, I might have asked him. I forget actually the order of operations. But I was like, dude, what is what is that? And he's like, come do it. It's awesome. It's gnarly. Bikepacking is sweet. He has a great deal more experience than I do. I mean, I've done one event that we'll probably talk to maybe a little bit. But yeah, I mean, in a year that doesn't have many events, does not have typical events that has a great deal of socially distanced um, bicycle riding, this this piqued my interest. And this actually wasn't just confined to Arkansas. You touched other states as well, correct? Yeah, to, to the degree that, you know, you might do the Tour de France and it might dip into other countries here and there. Um, so, yeah, I would call it 99% Arkansas. It did go on day one into Missouri for a brief stint, a couple miles, dozen miles or something. And then it goes in and out and in and out of Oklahoma two times. Got it. Okay, can you explain the difference in going from a gravel race to a bikepacking race and just talk about, like, did your Vermont XL experience help with preparation for this? Mm. Did your James Bay descent help with preparation? Yeah, probably James Bay more than anything. So that was the midwinter self-supported trip down the James Bay in northern Canada. So fat bikes, ice roads, negative 40 degree temperatures, survive and do it with my dear friends who are far more experienced in this genre of riding bikes and survival than I am. And not to say that we were facing the same uh, tenuous circumstances in northwest Arkansas, but it got down to 28 at night. It was kind of chilly and, and, you know, the bad decision in the middle of freaking nowhere, you could, you could, you could go astray. Um, certainly gravel bike riding in my background there helps in terms of sustained output and bike handling and confidence on, on some really, really ripping descents. Um, yeah, short, steep, very steep climbs and then long, steep climbs are, are basically how I would categorize this, the terrain out there. Um, I mean, almost a better comparison is how does like a world tour background compare it to bike touring? And the answer is they're, they're, 
entirely different sports in that when you're in the world tour, when you're a traditional bike race, or even when you're at a gravel race, you have one thing to largely pay attention to, and that's pedaling from point A to point B. Whereas in bikepacking, you have everything to pay attention to. You have to pay attention to your navigation. You have to pay attention to your nutrition. You have to pay attention to your sleep, your hydration, your fueling, the map where you are going to get food is the last place, is the next place that you're going to stop. Is it going to be open? Does it even exist? Um, Has it closed six months prior? Um, I mean, at the same time, you're posting to social media. You're trying to capture content on the GoPro Seems yeah. like you actually had a a lot on your agenda every day. Yeah, there's. I mean, even you know, at the world tour level, sure, individual riders have their social media, but like every team has a social media manager, and so then you got to do the same thing individually as a bike packer. <laughs> um, yeah, like I said, you have to take the twelve selfies throughout the route, and you have to navigate, and that's that's relatively simple enough. Although you, this is where the beta comes in. Like again, do you, where might you stop that night? Are you going to stop at a hotel? Can you shoot far and, and make it to a hotel? Or are you going to sacrifice some sleep and sleep in a ditch on the side of the road? Um, and yeah, there, you know, it, it's a good question of your level of energy. Do you want to, as simple as it sounds, like to pull out your GoPro and, and shoot a shot and, you know, hopefully create this video that, that Ansel, my dear friend Ansel, and will create. So, um, Jay Pettiveri, I forget his term exactly, but Jay, who had the previous individual FKT on the course, he was a huge help. I mean, I reached out to him. I knew him through the cycling world. He he is in his element at this big distance, crazy stuff. Um, the multi-day adventures, the, he has records all over the world, literally. And I forget his term exactly, but he, he calls it work. Like as you're pedaling or even as you're resting, it's work. You have to be constantly taking inventory of what's going on thinking about battery life. What do you need to charge next on the fly? As soon as you stop, what are you going to do? Just because every second, every moment, every pedal stroke, every everything is is a valuable moment. I mean, it's it's simple to think that you might get lost in the moment and all you're doing is sort of taking in your surroundings and pedaling, but there is so much to it. Well, if I can interject as someone who knows you well, if there's anything that describes you, it is... Forward thinking, proactive, always thinking about the next detail. So that sounds like it is kind of suited to your uh, to your <laughs> strengths. Well, uh, uh, Betsy Walsh, journalist Welch. Welch. Yeah, I knew that didn't sound right when I said it. <laughs> Betsy Welch, journalist at Velo News. She did a very nice article beforehand. And I was deep into the throes of packing at that point. And it was, she she said something funny. I mean, she obviously has experience doing it. She said, well, isn't it funny that that it's almost like the biggest part of bike packing is packing. And at that point, I was so overwhelmed with packing. And I packed and packed and packed and unpacked and repacked my bags and unpacked and repacked my bags and thought I had everything. Still not knowing what the weather's going to be like and this and that and the other. Like how much food do you bring? How far are you going to be able to go before you need to refuel? Yada, yada, yada. It sounds simple, but it's so easy to way overthink so I got it I was like you're completely right like bike packing it's all about the packing and then you know on day three when you're just absolutely smoked and emptied on the trail you're like well okay packing is part of it but biking is definitely a huge part of it too so <laughs> yeah there are two enormous components into this bike packing thing well you mentioned uh 28 degrees you mentioned sleeping on the side of a trail so 
Tell us how you prepared for an effort like this, but also how you prepared not just for the physical effort, but the other new details like sleeping on the side of a road. Um, well, I tried to do... Okay, we got back from our, our van trip, what, early September? Does that sound right? Mid-September? Correct, yeah. And truth be told, those previous two months, so call it, we left in late July. July, August, and early September was, it was fun. And it was a, it was a wild van tour to go see, introduce uh, Hazel to Laura's family. It was not great for fitness. We got to ride our bikes, but like, it was a two-month Relatively low volume. Yeah. Yeah, it was like catch as catch can. Oh, we got a moment to ride. Let's go ride real quick. Mm -hmm. So, and in the back of my mind, I I honestly, honestly forget when this hit my radar, but I think by then I was interested in doing this. I got to assume so. And yeah, it's like such an inane distance that it's really hard to train for. I remember, and you'll remember it, like I, I had a little bit of angst and late, September, early October, as I'm trying to do long rides, I'm like, okay, today is a big day. I'm going to go big. I'm going to ride eight hours. And like, what does that mean? Because eight hours is a fraction of one day. It's like less, uh, what, a little more than a third? I don't know, why is my math wrong? I mean, if you're going to do a 20-hour day, like that's eight hours ain't nothing. So if I remember, I mean, the ride, one of your long rides, you you almost called me for a pickup <laughs> yeah oh right, right, so right. Was actually that yeah. was coming back from our van trip do you remember um you decided to ride back from new hampshire and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i took hazel and the only reason you didn't call me is because i was unpacking the van and yeah. grocery shopping and there were a couple ones or you do you remember in the house almost crying <laughs> when we did that that crazy like self-supported gravel event up in Jeffersonville and then I did hours afterwards and I started riding that morning at like 6 a.m. So I did a 10-hour day to be like, okay, what's a 10-hour day feel like? And I rode home and the final many, many hours went to a headwind. I'm just like, oh, what am I doing? Just sort of <laughs> seething. So so I'd say what? You probably did five long rides Yeah, if by long, it's like north, than, north of six hours. So yeah, like longer than six and shorter than 10. And what I've come to discover in, in basic hindsight is the whole point is it's energy conservation and it's to ride as easy as possible for as long as possible. It's almost like any time you go out on a training ride, independent of this bikepacking thing or maybe including the bikepacking thing, you're generally pretty empty when you finish. So if you do a one-hour ride, outside of like a one-hour easy span, but if you do a one-hour ride or a three-hour ride or five-hour ride or or whatever, you come back pretty smoked and it's like you've emptied your tank for that period of time. No different than the, the cross Vermont ride. I mean, like you are just, you can, you can really empty yourself and an event like this is completely different because you can't be empty. You can't, you always need to be riding at a, at a low enough effort so that, so as to still have energy. So, I mean, we can go on at this, to this point for a very long time. The other things that I, I, I entertained you by, <laughs> it was a damp early October, mid-October, 
And so sleeping, I, you know, I've never slept in a bivy before. Like I'm a civil human being. I like to sleep in beds. <laughs> but there I was having to prepare for the, the possibility of sleeping out in the rain. Um, so I got a bivy and I got a sleeping bag and slept on a rainy day. I was like, you know what? We have a th- probably a three-season porch. I'm going to sleep on our porch on this pouring rain day because it was getting down to mid-30s that day, that evening. And I, I kissed you goodnight, and then I went out and slept on the, on the wooden floor in my down pants and down jacket and bivy. And I went upstairs to our room and turned on our heated mattress pad. Yeah, that was a good move. <laughs> so that at 1 a.m., after having not really slept for the previous three hours or four hours, I came inside and slept on the couch and deemed that a not terribly successful uh, evening of sleep. Now, a couple things. One, that that really did rattle me. I was like, shoot. Yeah, the next morning you were, you seemed pretty bummed about it. Oh, totally. Yeah, I thought, I've heard the stories of the emergency bivvies that reflect 90% of your body heat and it almost sounds like, oh, cool. Like, I'm a warm body. Maybe I'll just stay warm all night. <laughs> and there I am in this helium bivy, this wonderful helium bivy by the good folks at Outdoor Research. And it's waterproof and has this little like propped up tent thingy in it so I can, you know, not suffocate myself. But yeah, I woke up the next day, hardly, 1 a.m., and I was just bummed that I didn't really sleep and I, I was freezing and I had to start moving. So I talked to Bobby and Bobby had helped me figure things out with a bivy. I mean, like, look, I'm calling myself a rookie as all rookies get. Like, I'm I'm a novice at this foolishness. And then... The next day, maybe two days later, I slept with a sleeping bag in the bivy and noticed that was considerably warmer and that gave me a huge boost of confidence. But then even zeroing in on the final few days and doing more research, like you're packing as light as possible in order to get a couple bits and spurts of sleep at night so that you wake up cold so that you start moving again so that you don't have a restful night of sleep. I mean, it sounds stupid to say you don't have a restful night of sleep, but like if you're sleeping comfortably eight hours warm, then you've brought a lot of clothes and a lot of stuff. Whereas if you're really sort of gunning for time, then you almost want to be underslept and and be chilly after three hours. And that means, up oh, time to start moving and you can start pedaling again. Hmm. How does that sound for comfort? No. <laughs> you're rolling Not your eyes at me. Alley. <laughs> um. Can you talk about the terrain? I know there was a specific question about asking if you would compare the terrain in Vermont as compared to Arkansas and also talk about how you chose which direction as this race allows you to ride either clockwise or counterclockwise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So as much as I said... There isn't a lot of looking around. There is still plenty of time to look around. And what was really cool about the topography, geography, uh, the the stone makeup, the rock makeup, the sand makeup, the, the terra firma makeup, is over the course of a thousand miles, I, there were so many slivers of different looking rock and be it the rock itself or the vistas. I mean, it just, I felt like I was in so many different places. So apologies if I've said this before and you may have heard this before, but yeah, there were plenty of times that it does look and feel like New England. There was sort of late fall foliage, um, burnt leaves, beautiful burnt leaves, 
colorful, you know, colorful but past peak um, with similar rock structure. There was times that it looked like it reminded me straight up perfectly of unpaved Pennsylvania, the really long drag climbs with similar leaf gravel structure. There were some vistas on day three and four that looked exactly like the Smoky Mountains and exactly like the Blue Ridge Parkway. That was stunning. Um, and then there were not just deciduous trees, but coniferous. There were, there were times that I felt like I was in the Sierras, like big, tall, massive pine trees on like similar of that, uh, like Grindero-esque stuff. So yeah, I mean, it, it was cool to see so much in a relatively small geography. Like sure, I say it's a thousand miles, but it's so sinuous that, and you're going this like snake-like thing all over Northwest part of Arkansas, you're not covering a ton and yet you do cover a ton. So yeah, it sort of wowed me with how much variety there was. Clockwise V counterclockwise. Um, I thought that I, I mean, you know, it's 50-50. Basically, they, they give you the opportunity, do you want to go counterclockwise or clockwise? And I started to nerd out on it, and I was looking at so many other details that I decided that that's not one that I really wanted to pay attention to. I figure I have the fitness to either hit hard stuff early and then be able to coast onward or coast early, so to speak, and then be hitting the hard stuff later. My big failing there is that the first two days were really short, punchy, really, really, really hard climbs. I'm going to say short and punchy, you know, a minute or less, two minutes or less, three minutes or less. And so when I got to the halfway point and I saw Andrew, I was just like, oh man, like you don't know what's coming, buddy. And then it was later that, and we chatted, and we, he's already written the course, so I couldn't tell him what he knew he was about to roll into. And he said, yeah, what you have coming up is pretty challenging. And I saw on the Instagram that, you know, the, the race itself had posted, hey, Ted and Andrew are basically tied. Which one of these guys has a harder course ahead? Hint, it's Ted. No idea that how much harder it was. Like when you're looking at a profile map that is on a computer screen four inches long, and you see a couple spikes, like, okay, that's a climb. But the reality is a thousand mile by scale, those spikes are big, big mountains. And as much as you wouldn't think that there are big, big mountains in Northwest Arkansas, like on the final day, we did a 30 mile climb. And to that end, you might be like, well, that sounds like the lamest 30 mile climb ever. You, you climb something super short and steep for two minutes and descend for 30 seconds. Super short and steep, descend. So you're stair-stepping up nonstop for like, literally hours at a time, three hours at a time. Um, there was a time that I pushed my bike for maybe an hour, just straight up this 18% grade. So I like long-winded answers. Uh, would I don't know if I would do it differently. I mean, it's so brutal from the start that and those finishing climbs could have, yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything. I, I'd be happy to do the route either way, but it's hard no matter which way you go it. Well, let's, I've broken up the next series of questions um, into logistical questions, emotional, mental state questions, and experiential questions. So we're going to start oh with logistical. Okay. Terrific. Um, walk us through just a general timeline of how the race unfolded. And I know a lot of people are interested in the amount of sleep that you got throughout the race. How the race unfolded, like... 
sort of day to day, start to finish, or how I'm looking at each uh, just day? in general, like how much did you stop? Um, what, where were where were you stopping, and when were you sleeping, and where? Okie dokie. I'll try to do a twofer. So those those of us going northbound and therefore clockwise, we started with a thirty mile uh, bike trail connecting Fayetteville to Bentonville. And so that was fun and we're all chatting. I mean, you know, the group dwindles quick, but so there's a half dozen of us chatting away and taking selfies and yada, yada, yada. And it's early on a Saturday morning, so you see some pedestrians and fans and people cheering and that was very cool. And after Bentonville, we hit some gravel and this, from there it starts to blow up. And it's like, all right, ready, said go. See you all in a thousand miles. Um, I had three water bottle cages I guess stops were indicated were dictated by how much nutrition and, and fueling and hydration you have. So I have three water bottle cages. I would carry a lot of food, and I have a, uh, a water filter. So you're constantly on the lookout for water. In reality, I only used it probably two or three times because there are enough gas station stops to refill. But similarly to that, you also want to be carrying enough food so that if you come to an expected convenience store gas station restaurant and it's closed, you can make it the next two, three, four, five hours. Um, and that was, that is a constant risk and worry. And so you might be thinking like, well, duh, why don't you just carry like three extra untapped waffles? That's, that's not enough. Yeah. You could make it if it were complete dire circumstances, but you are trying to, you know, optimally perform and have enough calories in. Um, so that means I'm probably riding, you know, three hours at a go, probably anywhere from two to five between stops. Um, I would want to mix things up and literally get off the bike for the sake of being in a different position. Mix up your hand positions, get off your bike, stretch a little bit, pee, like just move for the sake of movement. Um, and then cumulatively, call it a stretch of pedaling was... I think anywhere from 17 to 20 hours and then sleeping. I slept a couple nights in a hotel and that's where I would, I probably got four hours of sleep and it set an alarm just so you're not oversleeping and, and suddenly find yourself waking up eight hours later with a, the big deficit. Um, Did you have to set your alarm to charge batteries or to do anything in the span of that four hours, like did you? I read that Andrew was waking up every hour to reset all of his. No, batteries. I didn't. I had. I mean, this goes to like the nuance of my 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 diving into what's what I'm going to need. Yeah, I had enough prongs to have enough chargers to be able to be charging things. What do I have to charge? A cycling computer, a spare battery, a uh, set of earphones which I can't find I have since lost them if anyone sees my jaybirds please tell me what else did I have a rear light um I feel like I had more but that's it and my headlight my headlight was a sine wave uh with a regenerative hub so you know in an ideal world you have your regenerating hub that is connected to your light and that is producing power. And then from your light, you have a USB in the back that you can be charging other things. Oh, and the last thing would be your telephone that you want to charge. And your watch, because I, uh, I had a GPS watch as a backup because the last thing I wanted to do was to do this entire ride and not have the GPS file. Mm -hmm. 
ironically, that died, and the GPS only got two-thirds of the map, even though it has all the data. So, beating around the bush here, yeah, sleeping a couple hours, as short as one hour, which was awful, and as long as probably about four, and then you sort of uh, pack up as quickly as possible and, and start moving once again. I guess just thinking about what I know about the sleep that you got, thinking about we had two nights around four hours, another night at an hour and a half. Maybe you slept a total of 11, 12 hours. Do you think that would be accurate? Yeah, I mean, I really should just jot it down and do some back of the napkin edition. I realize you probably just did that right now. I mean, I'd be curious. I have looked at a lot of the whoop data. I haven't looked at the sleep all that deeply. It completely shocks your system so that a four-hour night of sleep does feel restful. Or on the final night, in the final four hours, I slept two 15-minute segments because I was just so, so exhausted. Like, I'm either going to fall asleep while pedaling my bike or I'm going to pull over and sleep. And those 15-minute segments felt like a good reset or recharge. I mean, it's almost like a, it is like a battery. There are a lot of batteries that, that recharge like that. Oh, there's another one. Yeah, I would recharge my uh, ETAP batteries, which work ridiculously well. I think the first one died after 60 hours, which the amount I'm shifting, that's shockingly good. So... Well, you're kind of starting to move into gear, and that was going to be my next question. So mm-hmm. you tell us about your bike setup, why you chose the Super X, and... Um, just how you went about figuring out the gear that was going to be necessary. There have been a lot of questions about why I didn't ride the top stone. And first and foremost, and exclusively, because the top stone that I have has the lefty fork, and the lefty fork does not take a uh, one of these dynamo regenerating hubs. I don't know if that's the right word, but a power generating hub. So you need a more traditional hub, and therefore I rode a traditional bike in the form of the Super X which worked out great. You know, it's it's a little bit lighter and sportier and racier, slightly less comfortable for the long haul, but whatever, I got it done. Um, and then from there, I worked with the good folks at Apadura, who are uh, a waterproof bag company, and they had coincidentally reached out to me earlier in the year, and I was like, uh, you know, I don't really need bags, especially of your durability and waterproofness. Oh, wait, lo and behold, uh, I have this crazy race that I'm going to do, and it might rain profusely. So so they were awesome with bags. I had a handlebar bag. I had a top tube nerd pouch. I had your standard frame bag, and I had a saddle bag, um, all of which were big and spacious. And despite all the spaciousness, you you know, if you have the space, you're going to fill it up. Um, I won't tell you every single thing I brought. But it basically boils down to bivy sleeping bag, down jacket, winter hat. So you put those on and deploy them as soon as you stop. I did bring a stove, which was kind of smart and kind of not that smart. Um, My dear friend Buck told me that early in the morning, the one thing you're going to want is a cup of coffee, a hot cup of coffee. And if you don't have that, you're just going to be kind of angry. And I ended up using it in the hotel which was great, and I enjoyed that, but I could have just as easily used the hotel's coffee machine. So the irony being, the one night that I did sleep out 
in the middle of nowhere in a ditch and it was freaking 33 degrees, 28 degrees. I didn't use it to warm up with my cup of coffee because it was so cold that I had to start moving and bouncing around and dancing in place and pack up and leave or else I would have just purely frozen. So what were the temperature ranges? Um, at the very end, it got super warm, so I got probably mid-60s. Um, generally, I was comfortable in short sleeve, taking your arm warmers on and off, um, no leg warmers during the day. And then as soon as the sun goes down, because this time of year, it just gets pretty darn chilly. So you're then quickly into the 40s. And overnight, yeah, as low as high 20s, mid-30s. Okay, so it sounds like maybe you didn't need to bring the jet boil. Is there anything else that you didn't use that you brought? Um, I mean, I never had any... And this is a stupid answer. I never had any tire issues, so I wouldn't bring three spare tubes. I wouldn't bring my patch kit, although, you know, you don't bring them, you're going to need them. Exactly. Uh, I brought a spare CO2. I had a CO2. You should see the van, right? I mean, I packed the van full of stuff so that I could then make the final decision there on the start line, effectively. But then you end up just stripping most, you strip away 90% of the stuff you put in the van. Um, Wasn't there something in in the van that you ended up wishing you would have brought Brake pads. brake pads. Yeah. So I went into it with full front brake pads and probably three quarters life rear brake pads, maybe half life rear brake pads. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if I'm using my brakes, that's just a waste of energy. And I'm pretty handy on descent. So <laughs> let's just not brake. I'll be fine with half brake pads. <laughs> Only to learn that these are ferociously steep descents on loose, gnarly gravel, on leaves, on rocks with tight corners and so you you do have to break unless you just hell-bent on crashing um and so after day one i'd burnt through the rear pads for all intents and purposes and then you have to go on a wild goose chase of trying to find the right shop that might be open and yada 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 so big plug for the ride in conway arkansas for helping procure me some some breaks um and for rebecca rush for chastising me for for not bringing a spare set of brake pads. So she'll take any opportunity she can to oh yeah, absolutely. chastise the roadie. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I mean, like maybe don't bring a CO2, but always bring a pump. So I had CO2 and a pump. You don't, in reality, you don't need the CO2. Um, again, I was always overpacking food because I didn't want to run out of food and that inevitably weighs you down, but I probably wouldn't change that. So yeah, the... the truth be told as much as I obsessed about packing I think I did a pretty decent job well let's talk more about food okay what did you eat how did you manage your nutrition how many calories do you think you ate in a 24-hour period and how did you feel eating a gas station diet felt amazing (laughs) okay I put together this list as I was sitting in place once here's here's a brief list of things which is a small fraction of what i ate haribo which is everybody's favorite gummy bear brand haribo gummy bears haribo peaches almond snickers i stopped at the rich mountain convenient uh general store restaurant whatever you want to call it two pancakes one eggs hash browns coffee i stopped in hatfield i had what i would call brown water coffee which is basically just brown water (laughs) potato sausage egg burrito Zebra cake, many cookies, many, many, many cookies. Rice Krispie treats, natural gummies. And by that, I mean like those gummy snacks. And they were hyped to be real fruit. 
Yeah. I mean, they're sugar, but whatever. A granola bar, donuts, burger and fries. Oh, that was great. When I stayed at uh, Mount Ma- uh, the Mount Magazine Lodge, burger and fries, fried chicken and broccoli. Quarter pounder with cheese McDonald's, peanut butter and banana sandwich, Oreos, oatmeal, a banana, bag of peanuts, Reese's Pieces, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, cinnamon rolls. Oh, that was great. That's where we stopped at. Uh, Chuck Campbell is the course designer and event director, and the, uh, the course goes right by his house with, I forget, 200 miles to go. And I thought I had a relatively easy stint from where he was to the next spot, and thankfully, he was out at the end of his driveway with his wife sort of cheering me on, and, and he was going to be out for all the, the competitors to go by. And he he was like, well, you basically have this 30-mile climb, and everything that you've just expected to do, you're not even going to do half of it. So that's where I got the cinnamon rolls. That's where I got the Reese's peanut butter cups. That's where I got some of the Rice Krispie treats, some water. They were extraordinarily helpful. Um I stopped at a place called, oh man, I'm going to butcher it, like Tropical Wrap. I don't think that's right, but it was this wonderful chicken wrap. I also got a Caprese sandwich. And that, oh, I also allotted it out that I would have two on taps of everything every day. So I'd have two waffles, two uh, what we call untaps, the maple syrup packets of varying flavors. And two maple aids every day, just because I knew that I was going to be eating a ton of really crap food on the road, and untapped is the only nutrition that I use, and I wanted to be able to be sure that I had, even if it's only for that small fraction of a day, have something that I'm accustomed to and look forward to. So outside of untapped, because we know that's one of the best things that you'll ever eat, what was the most satisfying thing that you ate during this race? Uh, The real food certainly wins the day. So the rich mountain, we'll call it the rich mountain country store. It's sort of a, it is a store. It's sort of a converted home. It's a, it's a quick serve diner. They made up the most amazing probably inch and a half tall pancakes. They put them in a, you know, they put it on the griddle and then around it, there's a, a ring. So every pancake is the perfect shape and size. And it was just like the most pillowy, wonderful, delicious thing. And so when I, I initially sat down and I said, I'll have two pancakes, eggs and hash browns. He's like, my pancakes are really big. I'm like, ah, uh, okay, fine. I'll only have one. And he served it up and he's like, and you know, I can make you one to go. And I said, yes, please make me one pancake to go. And he bagged it up and put it in my jersey pocket. Um, the burger was funny because, yeah, we put the order in at, what, 8 p.m.? The restaurant closed at 8 and I got there at 10. So a burger that had been sitting on the, the hotel lobby's counter for at least two hours was just heavenly it was so that was a brutal 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 day and so a burger with soft gross fries were amazing (laughs) so any any estimation on the number of calories you think you consumed in 24 hour period oh sheesh i haven't done that math i think i mean according to my 
cycling computer, I burnt 51,000 calories. That would be interesting to see. I mean, what? If you're an average human, you're supposed to do. An average male does 2,500 calories in a day, and I was gone for almost five days, so I should have done about 12,000 calories, consume and burn. And so I did, what, 4x that? Um, I tried to eat, I, I ate something, as long as I was pedaling, I ate something every hour. And so that would be a minimum of probably 300 calories. I would often on really hard days and hard sections, I was eating every half hour or 45 minutes. Um, I know that I was depleted a lot. So, I mean, I, I know I ended up cons- uh, burning through more calories than I was consuming. I was dehydrated more often than not just because water was not always easy to find. Yeah, it's kind of impossible to not be. Yeah. So that, I mean, I'd get the particular sections and be like, okay, I'm depleted. Gorge yourself in food and or chug a water bottle, even though you're not thirsty, and then fill your water bottles again. So amidst all of your eating, um, how did you go about deciding pacing and... Did you focus on your competitor's pace as you had the ability to be able to look at that or did you just feel confident in kind of following what felt best for you? Much more the latter, much more following what felt comfortable. I mean, I, yes, I did come away with the FKT. I'm very happy with that, but I had no intention of going in with the hell-bent goal of, of taking it. This is such a new, different gnarly sport independent of of anything that I've done in the past so I didn't want to set my goals too high I did want to finish I did want to survive I did want to see what it is to be like in a in a self-supported entity so it was nice having the the track leaders that was a cool feature and for the first day and a half I was paying attention to Ezra who is who is chasing me going clockwise um again I know the general gist it's ride a lot sleep a little but even going into the first night Ezra's a couple hours behind me I don't know if I sleep for four hours does that mean that he is gonna pedal past me sleep for 15 minutes and continue pedaling past me so like I was on I was on tiptoes that first night. I mean, I I rode until 1 a.m. And I was like, all right, time to go to sleep. But I was just like giddy and excited and trying to go to sleep on this rock hard tile floor. And and that was tough. Um, And so then fast forward, you know, I'm getting texts from every which way, text and messages, direct messages, and so on and so forth. And and I'm trying to balance those as much as I'm trying to focus. And my mom was texting me and she's like, you know, Andrew is leading the counterclockwise loop, and he, uh, I don't think he's slept, and that's why he's keeping pace with you. And I'm thinking to myself, like, what? I have not paid attention to anybody who's going counterclockwise. It just it wasn't on my radar, even though I could fire up the app and look at it. And, and sure enough, Andrew is cruising, and I haven't been able to dive into the, the details to see that he really is cruising because he's operating on, what, two hours of sleep in the first 60 hours or something? Um and he was hell-bent for leather. Like, that's that was, as he's described, he was going for broke. Like, go big or go home. Mm-hmm. And 
that did make it fun and it did add a uh so halfway through when we meet up like oh dang like we're we're pretty much head to head right now let's see what what goes down i mean it was so fun it was amicable it was it was a cool component so yeah i mean i i heard a lot of um feedback that we were all fascinated by clicking refresh on track leaders and um, a lot of people were thankful for the distraction during the week of the election which leads me to ask my next question did you vote and (laughs) did you have any news updates during the race about the election or were you blissfully unaware I did vote I voted absentee weeks in advance weeks and weeks in advance as you do as you do <laughs> and yeah to be honest it was kind of a letdown given the I mean I guess I'm sort of as guilty of it as anyone it's like being in traffic and being annoyed by traffic even though you're a cause of traffic to fire up finally get reception at some point on Tuesday late in the day and be like all right who's the president and be like oh wah, 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 we don't know so yeah, that was a nice distraction. You know, you you use your phone as much as I'm trying to balance a phone with really really terrible battery life and a not a righteous charging capabilities. Using it on a limited basis. But trying to get a distraction here or there. Like mm-hmm. yeah, fire up the news and see what's going on. Fire up social media, see what's going on. Um the only other voting anecdote I have is that was during day Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, day four. Yep. That was a big section that I I knew that it was going to be tough to get water in various sections. And I went by a, it was a church and there were a handful of cars parked, and I was like, oh, it's a Tuesday. What are people doing at church? Oh, yeah, here's a vote here sign, and I went in and talked to the very friendly townspeople of whatever town I was in. I mean, there were four people in there, but it was just good democracy now voting, and they were, you know, they're there with their baked goods and just the civic community is the kind of day to see everybody in town they had a complete crack up when they they heard that I was in this race. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, anyway, they filled me with water and I was on my way. All right, we're moving into the emotional and mental state questions. Um, when did it really start to hurt? <sighs> um, I'd say day one was pretty euphoric. I think the evening of day one is where the hurt started to settle in. And that's where, in so many words, I, I, I mentioned it. I slept on the tile floor. And in order to pad the tile floor, I used a handful of towels. Thank you, Whit Springs Community Center. Um, it was nice because I got in and this, this community center was just a wonderful oasis. It's brightly lit it's always open there's a kitchen with food in it of all kinds is where i got the oreos and bags of peanuts and the banana peanut butter sandwich that was amazing there's not a place to sleep which okay they're not a hotel but the the punchline being i i went in 
thought and knew that I had everything within arm's reach, the food, the the ability to recharge figuratively, figuratively and literally, and I just couldn't sleep. And so I woke up that next day and that's where like the punishment started to, to unfold. I just ridden 240 miles. I'm about to go ride 240 more miles. I'm still chipper, but I'm like, oh, and that planned five hours of sleep ended up being maybe an hour and a half or two hours. So that's where I think the first signs of those painful bags under my eyes came out. Uh, Yes. And it only went down from there. Would you, would you say that was your lowest point of the race or the hardest part of the race or was there? No, hardest would be sometime in day four and five. Um, where like just the deepest level of exhaustion I talked earlier about you a lot and you output your power over the course of a distance and you're always going to be tired towards the end and in this case like that means the final few days are feel like the end and you're just you are running on fumes every time I look down my power meter and, and see that I'm doing you know 150 180 160 watts which I'm a big boy and so that is well, well, well below my zone one. <laughs> um, and so, it, I mean, it's a testament to just the need and the ability to recharge in a short period. If you can get a couple hours of sleep, if you can eat a meal, if you can stop pedaling for a little bit, then yeah, I could easily be back at 250, 280. But in the short term, it's just so painful i suppose i mean almost one of the hardest parts okay this would probably be my answer for the hardest moment this is the final 60 miles and i was thinking of increments of things that i am accustomed to i know the distance the finish is 60 miles away i think of it as okay if i do it traditionally if i do a 60 mile ride here in vermont like that's a beautiful ride that's a hard fun three and a half hours three hours four hours whatever it is so I'm like, okay, 60 miles. All right, it's going to take me like four or five hours, maybe six hours at the pace I'm going. And every pedal stroke is just painful and slow, and every hill feels like Everest. And then you get down to like 30 miles, and I think, okay, that's the that's the middle distance of King Challenge. That's not crazy. I can, I can get through that. It's 30 miles. And then the more you think about it, because I try not to do any mental math beforehand. Like you just can't because 1,000 miles is so unfathomably long. It would drive you crazy. And then I get down to 16 miles to go. I think, okay, this is like an easy hour. Traditionally, you do an hour-long spin, and you're not going to go super fast, and that's that's like get through this. It's one hour. But then you start thinking, okay, at the pace I'm going, the 16 miles is going to take two hours. So, yeah, it's it's just it was so fascinating how much time slowed down and was painful. Because then fast forward to the finish and I see people that I'd seen four and a half days prior at the start line, it feels like I'd just seen them. And so it's just the funny relativity of time. Like I feel like I'd just seen them and yet a mile, a minute, an hour, whatever it is, takes infinity of time. Was there ever a point that you considered quitting? <laughs> um, yes, to a degree. I mean, I... Never in the first couple days. Um, I was enjoying it. I was still sort of euphoric on what this whole thing was. And yeah, I mean, I got towards the end. I got in the final 250 miles and I I completely understood it. I understand why 
I remember hearing stories of people being in 100-mile ultra races, running races, and they'll quit at like mile 93 or 97 just with literally minutes or, or you know, very short, tiny fraction of the distance or time to go. Mm-hmm. And it sounds crazy. It sounds ludicrous. And there I am leading the race thinking like, oh, I, I get it. Like if, if Laura literally drove her car by me right now, I could, I could get in. I've, <laughs> I get this. We did have a phone conversation. I don't know, maybe you were 75% of the way in. And you said, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> and I said, well, first of all, yeah. you're supposed to feel like this at that. You're supposed to feel like that at this point. Second of all, you said that during Vermont XL yeah. and very quickly forgot. Yeah. And you can't make that decision until you're done. Oh, completely. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, the, it, it becomes a mental event as much as anything. You know, you just try not to let negativity or pessimism or, or those sort of thoughts enter your brain. It's, it's amazing how tunnel vision you are, especially late at night when you're tired and hungry and exhausted and you really can't look around because you can only see as far as your spotlight or headlight in front of you. And you don't see your surroundings. You're just like pedal stroke, pedal stroke, pedal stroke, pedal stroke, pedal stroke. Move forward because movement is progress and progress is closer to the finish line and keep on trucking. It was a challenge for me in talking to you in knowing how, what kind of, I guess, like attitude I should have when hearing your comments about how things were going, you know, it was hard to know, like, should I be really chipper and positive or is that going to be annoying (laughs) or should I empathize and be understanding or is that going to kind of allow you to kind of sink further into, yeah, this, this is just, I shouldn't be doing this. This is ridiculous. Um, So I tried to just be really neutral in my (laughs) comments back to you, but it was, you know, it's, it's not often that we get to actually talk in the midst of a competition. Normally it would mm-hmm. just be very brief, like cheering from the sidelines. And most of the time you're very careful, even on the sidelines, what you're saying. I remember, you know, in Ironman, people get annoyed when you say, you're looking great. It's You're almost there. And you're yeah. not really almost there. Yeah. Um, well, you were great. I remember thinking that this is entirely voluntary that I have taken this time away from you and Hazel this is by far long and away the longest time that I've been away from you guys I've been away otherwise once for two days and yeah in a way it's it's work to a degree and it's also fun and pleasure and again this is voluntary like don't sulk in something that you've signed up to do yeah so you were great i don't remember anything that you said that was annoying or outlandishly annoying so perfect (laughs) oh good (laughs) yeah nailed it um okay moving on to experiential here tell us about the wildlife you saw and if you were chased by anything uh certainly a lot of dogs chased by a lot of dogs but what i what I discovered, and I have not had the same experience talking to the other competitors, is 
If you get chased by a dog, typically that makes you like stand up and sprint and try to out sprint the dog. But I realize on my 40 pound machine, I'm not going to out sprint anything that has any effort whatsoever trying to chase me. So I just became sort of at ease. I was never worried about any of the wildlife throughout the trip. That Let that be the preface. So like when dogs would start barking and chasing me, I would just be like, all right, run alongside, stupid dog, here we go. And they would run for your typical 20 seconds or as long as like three minutes. <laughs> and then they went home and they never bit me and they never annoyed me and it was kind of cute. Um, and when I say, yeah, I don't know, maybe dozens, probably 50 dogs in total. Um, day one was the wildlife preserve. It was amazing. I saw a praying mantis. I saw a moose. Um, there were a bunch of people on the side of the road taking pictures of the moose. And if I were a smarter man, I would have stopped and gotten my GoPro out and taken a picture of the moose as well because he was nonplussed and just sort of hanging out. I saw a mountain lion on day one, which was very strange and kind of surreal. And again, it's like, well, uh, I don't have anything to do except keep pedaling. It was just sort of trotting up the road in front of me. It was aware of me. It was probably 50 yards away, but it wasn't hunting me and I wasn't hunting it. And it was just sort of weird and badass. Uh, tons of snakes, eh, not tons, half a dozen snakes of all shapes, colors, and varieties. And like I said, a praying mantis. <laughs> um, what logistical issues did you run into? Sheesh. The, I think just always being aware of the convenience store stuff, like how far I keep saying the same thing and I haven't really said it explicitly well, but being aware of how far you're going to go and is that next door going to be open. It's very hard to estimate average speeds because in some sections you're humming along at 18 miles an hour. That was rare and few and far between. And then other times you might expect to be going 15 miles an hour and then for hours upon hours upon hours you're averaging eight. And that's just horribly painful in every which way. So cell phone cord broke yeah cell phone yep that's right my cell phone cord broke I taped it back together I ended up buying another one at Walgreens in Hot Springs charging wasn't a huge issue although it's certainly something to be aware of I mean, it's not as simple as plugging into the wall and then an hour later your, your phone computer whatever the heck is charged like there's a lot of it, it affects how, how, how much light is being produced and so sometimes you need to be unplugging it so as to get full battery, or sorry, full light. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, there was nothing that was ever unachievable. It was just a lot, of, a lot of mental hurdles to be jumping throughout the race. I know one of the racers was hit by a car. Mm-hmm. Um, and had to abandon the race. Mm-hmm. How was the traffic? Did you feel safe? Yeah, I talked to Jesse a decent amount before the event, and I talked to him afterwards, and I'm happy to report that he is relatively okay. He came in from Oregon. He is a very experienced bike racer, bike pack racer. Um, having recently done, he just hosted 
a race that he hosts out in Oregon, and then he's also done the Atlas race in Monaco, Morocco, rather. Um, I caught up with him. You know, I'd passed him probably on day three, and he was going the opposite direction and chatted quite a bit, and he was in very good spirits, and I was pretty beat up and ready to... I wasn't going to quit, but I had mentioned, like, man, I get it why people quit. And he's like, do not scratch tonight. You are not allowed to scratch. I'm like, no, 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 I'm not going to. I'm just freaking exhausted. Um, and, yeah, the – and I caught up with him afterwards. He's – it was – it was. it's the crappy age in which we live. The motorist hit him because he was on his phone. The motorist was on the phone. Jesse has a bright yellow uh, green jersey. He has a bunch of flashing lights. Like you have to either have your eyes closed or be staring at your phone in order to hit him. And it was the latter. So the driver took responsibility. He is going to have his insurance pay a big settlement. It's sort of crappy because it's still just a slap on the wrist in the grand scheme of things. Um, I'd call both of them quite lucky. Yeah. Sad, scary inevitability in some degree that there's going to be motorist, bicyclist interactions. Uh, that said, overall, I'm absolutely blown away in a very positive way how friendly the motorists are and were. So that particular thing happened right outside of Little Rock, which is definitely the biggest city that we experienced throughout the event. And the rest of it is like just small roads, back roads, tons of roads that you are just in the middle of freaking nowhere. And time and time again, I'd be like on the road, two hours in, three hours in, and sure enough, a car goes by and they would wave and I would wave. And that was like the the positive motorist, bicyclist re- interactions that I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. So many waves. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'm thinking, and they're probably thinking the exact same thing. I'm thinking, where on earth are you going we're in the middle of nowhere like i haven't seen a town in hours i haven't seen a house in hours where are you and so yeah i guess for sure they're thinking the same thing um there's that story so in short you felt pretty safe yeah oh, what was very the breakdown so. of pavement versus dirt i i think i was told 50 50 it feels like so much more gravel just because the pavement goes by so quickly at that humming along pace. I mean, you, you have a weighed down bike and that moves very fast and you have a heavy bike and that moves much slower on the gravel, on the steep gnar gravel. Mm-hmm. I'll go with 50-50. Okay. Well, the attrition in this rate was pretty high. It's, I think mm-hmm. seven out of 19 people finished compared to a world tour event, uh, which is harder. I mean, maybe it goes back to, well, this may or may not work, this comparison. I was going to say, maybe it goes back to put yourself out on the bike for X period of time and you're going to be smashed by the finish. Now, that said, if you have a really hard hour-long criterium, I would call this considerably harder than a really hard hour-long criterium. (laughs) I would call this, when I did the Tour VT, VTXL, when I did the ride across Vermont, 310-mile ride, I was destroyed and I was exhausted with hours and hours to go in that. And this was effectively three and a half of those. That math doesn't work out exactly, but just bear with me. Um, they're, I would call them equally difficult, but in different ways. Like the added element of all the mental goings on made this 
a, a really fun, unique, different challenge than purely racing your bike. But then when you're purely racing your bike, like you've so much added stress of that being a job and delivering on your job. And are you, are you fulfilling your job? Are you, you know, putting Peter in the right place? Are you, are you pulling at the right times? Are you aware of some zany Italian screaming at you in the radio? So given that I can answer ambiguously, I'm going to call them, yeah, about the same hardness, just differently. <laughs> well, now I have a real zinger hmm. compared to 11 days of single parenting, which is harder. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> and do we get to share a belt buckle? Uh, you can use the belt buckle <laughs> as much as you'd like. I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> it's a trick question, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. It really is. <laughs> we all really know, though, don't we? Sure do. Um, so would you say this ranks as one of your proudest achievements on the bike? Yes. I'd call it one of my happiest achievements, especially in hindsight. I mean, shoot, yeah. What are my proudest achievements? I don't know. Is it like making the Tour de France or surpassing the million-dollar mark for the King Challenge or... You know, winning Dirty Kansas the first time, winning Dirty Kansas the second time. Yeah, I'd say all of the above are all of those likely are cool. Make the list. Yeah, sure. I mean, I would I would rank it up there in what I would call the top ten. This was something I am proud of. It's something I'm excited about. It's something that when I when I finished Dirty Kansas for the first time and won it, I, it literally took almost a year for me to be convinced to go do it again. Like it was, it was such a grueling event and then a similar thing with my cross Vermont ride I was just so destroyed and it took about a week I'm like you know what okay that was kind of cool I'll do it again where is this even though I'm destroyed for days and here we are a week afterwards and I still have you know limited feeling in my fingers and all sorts of other weird ailments I'm excited about these events and Thankfully, it takes so much out of you. You can't do them often. You can't do them week in and week out. You might do one a year. But yeah, it's. I'm excited about how excited I am about these events. Are there any in particular you're excited about? They're on your target list. <laughs> Someone reached out to me today on the social medias and said, hey, Ted, can you send me the, the your favorite website that lists all the events and bikepacking? And I'm like, Nope, but if you find one, please tell me. <laughs> Just because I don't know what they are. I don't know where they exist. And so please, dear listener, like send us this this amalgamated list. Um, the ones I can think of are this, the Colorado Trail, the Arizona Trail, um, Ride Divide, Tour Divide, and the, the Atlas Race, and Silk Mountain Road, Silk Road, Blues Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan? Kazakhstan. Chernobyl. <laughs> I don't know where that one is. It starts with a K. Um, I don't know. One thing at a time. Like, yeah, ride the tour divide interests me. It starts in Canada, and for all we know, we can't even do the event next year, much like it was canceled this year. What I do like about these events is they are inherently socially distanced and certainly you can argue, yeah, but you're going in and out of stores and this and that and the other and that is a thing. 
driving to the event, I felt very safe about doing so. Um, I mean, I literally got out of the car only to stop and get gas. That's the advantage of living in this this mobile four-wheeled vehicle. Uh, I basically bathed in hand sanitizer for a couple of days on the on the event itself and masked up always. So, um, yeah, I beats me. I don't know what what the future holds. Well, you finished, and I expected you to. I don't know, sleep 12 hours straight. And I think you maybe slept three hours and called me. Um, I imagine your body was sort of a mess of cortisol and adrenaline and yeah, excess caffeine. Um, what, what has helped with recovery? What's your, what has your appetite been like? What, what has your body done since finishing it experienced? I mean, food has been a very dear friend. I wish sleep was a better friend. I think you're right that cort- all those things, cortisol and, and adrenaline and caffeine were pumping through the system. I don't. I tried to not have too much caffeine, to be honest, and I don't, so maybe that was less so an issue. Um, but yeah, that first night, I went to bed at like 4 a.m. and woke up at like 7 and the, the sun's out and I'm awake and I just couldn't go back to sleep. Um and I think you stayed up the rest of the day. Yeah, true. I mean, I exerted, since the event is finished, I've exerted myself extraordinarily little. Today is one week post facto when I went on an hour-long hike with Hazel, and that was sweet, and it was a tameish hike. Well, you did drive two straight days after the event to get yeah, back home. Yeah, yeah, I did. I took one day, I mean, I thought I was going to, I thought I was going to finish and immediately drive home. <laughs> I didn't realize the level in which I was going to be destroyed. So I truly thought I was going to finish, shower out of the back of the van that's parked in the parking lot, sleep in the van, wake up the next day and drive home. And part of it is for your benefit and our family's benefit because I've been away for long enough as is. And we're just like, yeah, whatever, I can suffer through a tough night of sleep. Then truth be told, I finished the race at 3 a.m. I hang out and do an interview or two until 4 a.m. And then it's like, all right, I need a hotel because I need a shower. This is disgusting. Go to sleep for a couple hours, wake up the next day and cannot move. Like, I did get out of bed. That took 15 minutes. I did get to the bathroom. That took another 15 minutes. And since then, it's been this like slow... uh, What's that movie with Brad Pitt where he's born really old and then he becomes younger and younger and younger? Oh. It's the guy's name. You're all screaming at home listening. The fabulous Mr. Whatever. That's not right. But basically that's how I felt. Like I felt so unable to move and old. And you looked like you aged decrepit. 50 years. Yeah, there's hilarious photos where I just look like it. Somebody said I look like I've gone through 12 rounds of a boxing match like (laughs) true and then over time I've gotten back to normal a little bit it took a couple days for my face to get back to normal my body swelled up tremendously especially on the drive for obvious reasons and even though I was trying to drive two hours to go three hours to go and then get out and do some jumping jacks and walk around the car I wasn't exerting myself. I mean, I literally do 10 jumping jacks and put some gas in the car, but like trying not to be completely immobile. (laughs) Yeah, I got home and I was just a a sponge. I was swollen everywhere. It was, yeah. Yeah, you had cankles. Strong, strong case of cankles. You got some 
dry needling. You've been sitting in the Normatex. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You've been sitting, <laughs> resting in neck traction. What's that? What's that called? The neck hammock. Neck hammock. <laughs> yeah. So my maladies are. I had a twinge of tendonitis in my knee, which has gone away. I had some. Well, basically, I more than a twinge of tendonitis in my ankle, which was really quite unpleasant as it continued well past the time I was home. And then we saw her friend, Pamela, who I mentioned earlier. And she is a wonderful physical therapist, and she did some dry needling and some other soft tissue work. And uh, they let me borrow their Normatex, and that's been magnificent in helping. Like, I've gone from crap to excellent very quickly. The continued super annoyance, which is something that I hear in these podcasts with the interviews with with other bike packers, is the residual effects of tingly hands, not having feeling in your hands and toes. That stinks. I I can manipulate them, but not perfectly. Like I have, you saw me cutting my dinner tonight. I don't have good dexterity. It's hard to hold a pen. It's hard to hold a finger, a fork, and knife. It's weird. These are the things that I say it's not something you want to do more than a couple times a year, once a year. Because I don't want this to be a residual problem. Well, it's getting late. Sure is. As we wrap this up, what are, in summation, what are your bikepacking takeaways? As you yawn. (laughs) To yawn because I'm... Oh, that's another good residual answer to the last question. I'm still wake. I'm like I'm home, and I'm waking up early because Hazel's. You know, she gets up at four, five, sorry, five forty-five or six, and then I'll wake up around five or five thirty and be like, "All right, I'm gonna get up and go bang out some work before Hazel wakes up." But then as soon as I get up, she gets up, and so that by two o'clock, when two o'clock and three o'clock in the afternoon rolls around, when I'm normally wide awake, now I'm just like yawning and ready for sleep. So I'm still definitely have some cumulative fatigue. What's your whoop telling you? Um, whoop tells me I'm back in the yellow, which is which is believable. Um, probably take another couple of days before I'm presumably back in the green. I mean, for for so little exertion, it's impressive how well it knows that I'm still destroyed. Tomorrow I'll get on the bike for the first time in a week. Just easy spin. So, yeah, super duper fascinating. Um takeaways the sport and genre of bikepacking is very cool like you don't need to be doing it in competition i'm excited about the jet boil because i want to go use the jet boil on an overnight trip i like the bags because i want to use them you laugh because i want to go do them and go do a multi-day trip and then you're like well yeah but you got to figure out a way to allow me to go do this so that I'm not purely watching Hazel all the time. Like, once we get a trailer, then I'm going to be dragging both of you guys with me and we'll do some overnights and that'll be awesome. (laughs) That will be. Yeah, I mean, we live in some strange times and who knows what's going to happen with with COVID and the future of events and I'm as optimistic as anybody, but I like this style of event and I can see them going off more frequently than the potential delay of other events in the future. Um, they're not going to have it's not going to have the gravitational effect of 
of a race formerly called Dirty Kansas. I don't think you're going to see thousands of people lining up for these races because it takes such a huge leap of something, not leap of faith, but leap of just leap. You got to buy the equipment. You got to figure out what it's like to sleep out overnight. You got to want to sleep out overnight or at least be, be up to putting up with it. So it's cool because it is just a far reaching niche. Um, I love the people, love the, the support. It was, it, it has been nothing but positive, which is fantastic and very well graciously received. So thank you for the fine folks out there listening who are, who are paying attention to the tour tractor, the, the track leaders sending messages along. That was awesome. So what's the future? Beats the heck out of me. You get a crystal ball. You get to use it. Well, I know I speak for many when I say it was a very impressive feat you accomplished. You were a badass. Um, it was fun to be on the other side and see and hear from all the people who are tracking you and our friend Jeff Junkston, who was sending me video upon video of he had all the maps deployed on his computer screens and he was showing me where you currently were and then, you know, toggling back to the Google Earth map and showing me the terrain and showing me what you still had yet to ride and um, what his, your projected average speed was and when he thought you were going to finish. And by the way, I think he was pretty close on his... He was actually communicating with uh, Chuck and letting the race director know when you might be coming in to the finish. So it was a fun and exciting week and I think a lot of us had a lot of fun watching you suffer. suffer. <laughs> well... If I could bring a distraction during an otherwise curious week that was the American voting election week, I'm glad I could do so. Uh, yeah, I'm thrilled that so many people paid attention and it was it was wild and goofy and hilarious to get messages at all hours of the day, including at the finish line at 3 a.m. when most people presumably should be asleep, but there are the messages starting to pour in and to get them from all over the world was... Pretty darn special too. So thanks, y'all. Thanks for letting me uh, take over. I think we can call it queen of the ride today. Yeah. Do you have a, do you have a spiffy outro in <laughs> Ted King? You haven't practiced that one? I definitely don't know. Okay. Well. I can work on it. I'll let you do all the outros from here on out. All right. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this is Ted King. <laughs> uh, my dear, my sweet, my love, thank you very much for hosting and our fair listener thank you for listening and i bid you all a good night